welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Vince Bantu. Welcome, Dr. Bantu. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Um, I told you before we started recording that I found out about you through uh, Dr. Joel Olowski, uh, which was on um, some months ago. Um, as a guest on the podcast and um, Michael um, the executive director of early African Christianity um, mm-hmm. so um, that's how I got connected I looked uh, looked you up on Facebook and was like we gotta bring him on the podcast so now here you are <laughs> yeah, yeah it's good to be here <laughs> so tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your uh, field of research yeah um well, yeah, I, uh, I'm uh, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, um, and uh, that's actually where I have just returned to recently. Um, and so I'm, I'm bivocational, so I'm a, an associate pastor uh, at Jubilee Community Church uh, in North St. Louis. And uh, we are a um, multicultural uh, evangelical church affiliated with the Evangelical Free Denomination and, um, and uh, also strongly affiliated with the Christian Community Development Association, or CCDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm actually, my role there is the teaching pastor. Uh, but then I'm also a seminary professor, uh, also here in St. Louis at Covenant Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm uh, the actually the missiologist in residence there. So uh, I do um, most of the courses on missions. And uh, my, I just recently finished my PhD uh, just, uh, uh, just a little over a year ago uh, at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where I got my PhD in Coptic and Syriac literature, uh, and more broadly, uh, and you know, my, my interest in general, especially as a missiologist uh, covenant, my interest in general is the intersection between faith and culture, uh, spe- even more specifically, the Christian faith, uh, in, 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 and how it encounters specifically non-Western cultures. My, my, my biggest interest, both, both academically and really, uh, is the manifestation of the gospel message and the Christian faith as it's practiced uh, in non-Western cultural traditions and, and the ways in which it, it, it contextualizes uh, itself into non-Western cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and that would be, you know, ancient or modern, but, you know, I, I happen to do my dissertation on an ancient example of that, but, um, but, you know, that's kind of my interest across the time spectrum. Mm-hmm. And what's the title of your dissertation? <laughs> well, it wasn't uh it wasn't, you know, very publishable, but I think the title I think the, the official title was uh um ethnic identity development in Coptic anti-Chalcedonian literature. So <laughs> It's a mouthful. Uh, sounds like that paper was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um Originally, uh, I was when I was uh, researching. I saw um, you do a lot of work as as far as like early um, Christianity in in Egypt. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about 
how um how Christianity was in in Egypt in um the early church yeah most definitely um well uh you know probably um there's a there's a few good books that would kind of do a much better job, especially with the earliest Christianity in Egypt. So my, as as I mentioned in the title uh, of my dissertation, my expertise is a little bit later, uh, more in the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. Um, but but uh, yeah, I mean, there's evidence of Christianity from the beginning uh, in Egypt uh, from the beginning of the Christianity itself. In fact, uh, the earliest biblical fragment that is extant right now comes out of Egypt, the John Rylands papyrus, um, and, uh, which is a fract from the gospel of John and, uh, which is the earliest, I think it dates to the second century and is the earliest biblical fragment, uh, that we have. Mm -hmm. And it comes out of Egypt. So we have right there evidence that, uh, um, Christianity was, you know, in each from the earliest times. And, um, you know, this kind of gets into a, um, an argument that has been made by a German scholar from the mid 20th century named Walter Bauer, who uh, his book, Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity, he basically, uh, in one sense, I mean, his book was very helpful because it kind of, it helped us to understand that, especially in the earliest centuries of Christianity, what was heresy and what was orthodoxy wasn't exactly clear yet. And that there were just as many what we now would understand to be heretics as there were what we now would understand to be orthodox. And mm -hmm. um, I think, and, and for that part, it was very helpful and revolutionary for early Christian studies. But there's a way in which I, I feel, and many other people have felt that a very kind of Eurocentric view crept into his analysis to where uh, this kind of the second part of his argument was that what would later be known as orthodoxy principally developed in Rome. Whereas, uh, whereas the various heretical movements were developing in the non-Western parts of the church, like in Antioch and Alexandria and Jerusalem. And so basically the Middle, the Middle East and Africa were the uh, kind of the principal cultivators of heresy, whereas orthodoxy was principally kind of nurtured in Rome. Mm -hmm. um, and I just and, you know, a lot of other folks just have argued that the evidence just doesn't support that kind of generalization that, you know, there were her there were prominent heretics like Valentinus who were active in Rome. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's not like, you know, orthodoxy was the kind of the order of the day in Rome. And then on the other side, you have some of the earliest apologists uh, and some of the earliest orthodox Christian writers who come out of the non-Western world like Justin Martyr. Uh, and Tatian, who were from Asia Minor, and then also you have Clement of Alexandria, and then uh, also, as I mentioned, this this you have early biblical fragments coming out of Egypt, uh, also you know also coming out of Egypt. Um, and uh, Stephen Davis makes this point in his book on uh, the early Coptic papacy, which is another really good book that just talks about the introduction of Christianity to Egypt. Uh, he makes the point that out of all of these second century fragments of Christianity that come out of Egypt. Uh, only one of them is Gnostic, and almost and and all the rest of them are Orthodox Christian. One of which is a copy of Irenaeus's Against Heresies, and so these kinds of Orthodox Christian texts were starting no later than the second century. Um, but it's it's conceivable to think that Christianity could have come in even earlier, because as we know, Christianity spread uh, wherever the Jewish communities were in the early for in the first century and in the early world. And um, and the story, the the legend, you know, of the Egyptian church is that the apostle Mark, 
came to Egypt and brought the gospel to Alexandria and that and under his leadership, that's where the church originally grew. And while, you know, there's not evidence to support that claim or to make, at least to make it improvable, um, uh, it, there's also not uh, there's also not evidence to disprove it. And so uh, it, it's kind of relegated to legendary status. But we do. But it is very clear that there was a large Jewish community in Alexandria and that we have evidence of Christianity no later than the early seconds. Oh, wow. That's that's very helpful. Um, when you when you encounter folks that kind of refute, try to refute Christian Orthodox Christianity, by saying it's the mm-hmm. white man's religion, um, what is usually your answer to that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a hard thing. I think I think that there's a, a two kind of a double sided approach that we can take to that. Uh, you know, I'm thinking pastorally and um, and and even missionally that many people of non Western descent, whether they be Native American or Asian American or um, or, or even, you know, overseas in Africa and the Middle East, especially in the Middle East and, uh, and, and African-American, our community, uh, many people, uh, including African-Americans who are of non-European descent, uh, in these modern times, um, for, for most of us, our, 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 uh, introduction to Christianity was by white people who were bringing colonialism and slavery uh, and the gospel all mixed together. So it's very hard for those of us looking at things through the last five centuries, uh, our most previous five centuries of Christianity being um, really held captive by uh, Western culture and a Westernized version of it that, again, brought oppression. And so we're not able to kind of separate those things. And so I think that the I think that one thing we have to be able to do is to is to recognize that to speak to the injustice and the pain um, and uh, uh, and all of the atrocities that have been caused and to give voice to that and to give voice to uh, how the scripture speaks to those things and to, and God's heart for justice and God's heart for racial justice and racial harmony and God's heart for, for black people and that the scripture even teaches that black is beautiful um, and that, uh, and that, and that we have, um, you know that that we that the Christian faith is not one of oppression, but it's one of liberation and one of uh, embracing all people as they are. Uh, and so I think it's to speak to that and to um, to show people a a different Christianity, one that is uh, that's not devoid of concern for issues of social justice. And then I think the second step that isn't that doesn't happen as often, or at least as often as I would hope it would. Um, is we also have to go back and we have to re-educate our people and our community uh, and to also help people to understand that the last five centuries that we've experienced are not the beginning of the story um, and that uh, Christianity, while if someone were to only look at the last five centuries, then it would seem like it's the white man's religion and it's a mechanism of oppression. But when you go back 500 more years or a thousand more years and you go back to the early church, then you find out that Christianity was growing in Africa uh, before it was ever in Europe, and that when uh, Europeans were still worshiping Odin and Thor, uh, African Christians in Egypt and in North Africa and in Ethiopia and in Nubia were worshiping Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, and, um, 
before Islam even existed. And I mean, we're talking about at Egypt was, as we mentioned, Egypt was uh, was predominantly Christian uh, no later than the second century. And then uh, Ethiopia and Nubia were also, uh, Ethiopia became a predominantly Christian nation in the fourth century under King Azana. And uh, likewise in the fifth century, um, and I'm following the work of Salim Faraji here, uh, Nubia became a predominantly Christian country under King Silco in the fifth century. So all of, you know, these are, these are ancient African kingdoms that were predominantly Christian years before Islam ever even existed. And uh, in the seventh century, Islam comes into existence and and comes into Africa forcibly and through the sword dominates North Africa and Egypt. But interestingly, uh, Nubia, which was predominantly Christian, as I mentioned, uh, is actually the only example uh, that I'm aware of is the only example of a nation, an ancient nation in the seventh century that Islam tried to dominate and failed. And actually Muslim historians from the seventh and eighth centuries and onward specifically cite the Nubians and their skills with uh with with the bow and arrow and they were they they came in and the Muslims came in uh and conquered Egypt in the 7th century very rapidly and then immediately tried to go south of Egypt into Nubia and the Nubians fought them off and they created a peace treaty where um Egypt which was still Christian but it was ruled by Muslim rulers who came in from the Arabian Peninsula uh, you know, they kind of stayed on their side and the Nubians stayed on their side and they created a peace treaty where Egypt would remain under Muslim control, but Nubia would remain uh, under Christian control uh, as well as Ethiopia. So we have to, again, we have to go back and we have to educate our people that Christianity has a long legacy and history among black people in Africa. And this is, again, long before, I mean, Northern and Western Europe don't become predominantly Christian until uh, the time of Charlemagne in the beginning of the ninth century. So this is uh, several hundred years after uh, Christianity had already had a long history uh, in the continent of Africa. And we just have to educate our people on this to understand that uh, we have passed our situation and kind of our modern context of transatlantic slave trade uh, and Jim Crow and oppression in this country at the hands of people who call themselves Christians and understand that Christianity uh, has a much richer history than that uh, among our people. What would be the role that Egypt played in the councils, um, the early church councils? Uh, Egypt, I mean, Egypt played maybe the most central role in a lot of the church councils. I mean, our first ecumenical council uh, was, uh, in, you know, the Council of Nicaea and the Bishop of Alexandria, Alexander. He was, you know, really one of the main ring leaders in that. And then also, um, you know, after his time, uh, fighting against the Arian heresy uh, was Athanasius, who was also the Pope of Alexandria and Pope, Pope of Egypt. And uh, then also after, uh, in the 5th century, Cyril of Alexandria was so somebody who, you know, um, was very pivotal in, you know, dealing with the Nestorian question and uh, just the relationship between uh, Jesus and uh, his humanity, his divinity, and, and Mary, um, that, uh, yeah, Egypt is, is very pivotal in all the church councils. It's not till the mid-5th century that, yeah, and this is what my dissertation was on, that where you have this, really the first major split before the Protestant Reformation and before the, the East-West Schism in the 11th century. The 5th century is when you really have, and that's the schism that we don't talk about as much in church history across the board, uh, even mm-hmm. outside the African community. But it's uh, the reason I did my dissertation on it is because it's. I just I just think that missiologically, 
it is a council and it's a schism that could not be more important. And I think Philip Jenkins realizes this too, because a lot of his work has started to gravitate towards that as, as he really started out uh, his work with dealing with global Christianity and world Christianity, like his book, The Next Christendom. Um, but uh, I actually ended up having a similar intellectual trajectory as him in the sense that he starts out with looking at the way in which Christianity has shifted in the 20th, 21st to being a religion of the global north, to really being centered in the global south, in, in Africa, in Latin America and Asia. Uh, but then his later work goes more into this field of history. Like the, you know, he has an introductory work uh, to this whole branch of Christianity called the Lost History of Christianity. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that title, but uh, but it's a really good, um, you know, it's not lost. <laughs> you know, they've been lost, but maybe lost to us, uh, the Western folks. But um, but uh, but it's a really good introduction to um, you know this branch of Christianity. Also, his book Jesus Wars talks about this whole issue and how. This fifth century council of Chalcedon was the pivotal moment where um, there was, I mean, it was a theological split where there was a disagreement over the nature and person of Christ. That one side was saying that Jesus is one person in two natures, and the other side is saying that he's one person in one nature. And uh, there was obviously intense theological implications uh, on both sides. And what was at stake was people's concern about the the dignity and the authenticity of the incarnation uh, and, there, you know, but the 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 other interesting aspect of this, though, that can't be ignored is the fact that this theological split happened along geographical and ethnic lines, primarily where it was really kind of the Roman church uh, that was on one side of it. Uh, and then it was the churches of Africa and the Middle East and Asia that were on the other side of it. And this schism resulted in these kind of two halves of Christianity being separated and split from each other. And then for the, you know, for the next couple centuries, uh, the Western church, the Roman church began to oppress and try to impose their theology in the African and Middle Eastern world, which was probably Christian. Uh, up, and then just the relationship between the two became uh, very strained. And then in the seventh century, you have uh, Islam come up and rise up in this same part of the world that was predominantly Christian before, uh, again, before Islam came and. Uh, and now Christians, African and Middle Eastern Christians found themselves um, now being kind of double minorities, oppressed by Western Christians who were supposed to be their brothers and sisters in Christ, but also find under Muslim rule. And so that's, you know, that's really when you um, kind of have the the diminishing of Christianity in Africa and Asia, which was spreading rapidly. I mean, Christianity was was spreading across the continent of Africa, a river. And and then also all the way into Asia, into China and down into India uh, early, you know, very early in seventh century. Um, but again, when, um, you know, when Islam comes around and then especially a few centuries later, uh, uh, you know, Christian Christians in Africa begin to become more insular and inward focused. And and Christianity doesn't spread freely as it was for the first few centuries. And then so then by the time. In the 15th century, when you start to see uh, folks get into boats and go and start to colonize Africa and Asia and then going into the quote unquote new world, uh, at that time, Christianity is now coming into parts of parts of Africa and Asia that it hadn't already. And it's now being introduced by um, by Western folks who are holding up the sword and the cross at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's very interesting. Um, And it's not not a, a history that many of the African Americans are familiar with at all. Um, 
So I'm thankful for your research and your commitment to educate our community because um, it's definitely. Oh, thank you. What What would you say um, to African Americans who are so anti Christianity because they can only see it through the lens of the transatlantic slave trade? Um, I know you kind of already spoke to that. But one of the objections I got recently was that um, Christianity kind of was a religion, a a copycat religion um, from early Egyptian mythology. Um, And and we didn't, we kind of, this whole kind of view of it um, is kind of like, okay, you, you imposed this and took the religion that we had. What would be the people, what were they, as they were um, converting to Christianity, those who were Africans that were ministering to other, evangelizing to other Africans, what was the religion before before they converted to Christianity? Would you know? Well, yeah, um, I, and yeah, that's, I don't, I don't have as much familiarity with more ancient uh, Egyptian religion, but um, you know, like for example, in Ethiopia, there you know there was um, a lot of just indigenous kind of Ethiopian uh, religion, and you know uh, a good example of that is the is the huge stela or these kind of like sort of like obelisk uh, towers that exist still in Aksum, which was the uh, the ancient kingdom of the Ethiopian Empire at the time that it became Christian in the fourth century. Um, now and and so now of course the Ethiopians will claim that the Christianity came into the into Ethiopia in the first century through the Ethiopian eunuch, which is uh, again you know uh, very possible. Um, but again, we the in the fourth century is when we have uh, definite hard evidence for no later than that was Christianity the dominant religion, and you have these this these huge stela that have these uh, sun figures on the top, and so you know Ethiopians used to worship the sun. And when Christianity comes in, especially uh, even before that monotheism, because Ethiopian Christianity has a very huge Jewish flavor to it, uh, probably more than any other Christian church in the world. Um, and I mean, Ethiop- the Ethiopian language is a is a Semitic language. It's actually not a Bantu language or an African language. Um, and so there 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 is a very uh, huge genetic and linguistic and theological connection there. Um, but one thing that's interesting, just as an example, is that even after Christianity became the dominant religion in Ethiopia, I think one of the things that uh, that our community needs to understand the difference between is that, that uh, this is something that happened freely, that the king of Ethiopia in the fourth century uh, himself, King Azana, embraced Christianity as the religion of the Ethiopians. And uh, especially when Christianity comes into the indigenous language uh, of, of Giz, which is the ancient uh, Ethiopic language, um, and Ethiopians begin to develop their own style of church architecture, which is uh, best seen in the churches, the rock-cut churches of Malibella, which were, which were carved out when Lalibela became the new capital of Christian Ethiopia in the, uh, in the 12th century. Um, and then also that, uh, you know, that, that Christianity, the Christianity came to, came to the point of being synonymous with being Ethiopian. And it's still to this, to this day. In fact, in Ethiopia, um, there are, you know, it's about a third Muslim and, but there's a sense in, in Ethiopia to where if you're a Muslim, you've, you've embraced a foreign religion. 
mm-hmm. and and actually to be Ethiopian means to be Christian. That being being a Christian is synonymous with an Ethiopian identity. Mm-hmm. And again, that's just such a, a the flip of what we're dealing with in our community. Again, that's just based a, a lot of times really reading our history. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll again, like you were saying, we'll have this mentality that Christianity was forced upon us and it wasn't our true religion. But um, but again, we're only looking at modern history that while, yes, that was the case for uh, African-Americans and or African descendants of African slaves in the Western Hemisphere, that when we go back even before that, we see examples of Christianity being brought into Africa freely and that were being adapted. You know, I mentioned the the stele in, e- in Ethiopia where they worship the sun. Um, the the churches I mentioned in Lalibela is that there are actually pictures of the sun uh, in these churches. And and, uh, and that's kind of a carryover from their pre-Christian pagan religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people will say, oh, well, that's, you know, syncretism or, or whatnot. But, you know, then, you know, these but uh, I would I would guess that people who would say that would not have a problem with Christmas trees or, you know, with Christmas reefs or or with or with e- hunting for Easter eggs. And so, I mean, the uh, I mean, even the days of our week come from, you know, uh, Norse and Roman gods. And so. Uh, Western culture and Western Christianity is laden with examples of, you know, appropriating pre-Christian European imagery. And so uh, and so this is the kind of contextualized worship that we have to promote uh, for for non-Western people to combat this false idea, again, that Christianity um, that 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 it came in forcibly and it's a Western religion, but we have to educate our people that that there were these uh, like in Ethiopia, there were these examples of of um, autonomous churches that were contextualizing the gospel to African culture, depicting Jesus with an Afro and with black skin going back to the fifth century. And another, I mean, just to use Ethiopia as an interesting example, um, you know, most of the early icons that we find in Ethiopia depict Jesus and biblical figures as black. Um, And, but it's interesting that you don't get European looking icons coming in Ethiopia until much later during colonial times. And so uh, this is, um, this, you know, this, this is, I think, really our, most of our, our people in our community uh, who, who are resistant to Christianity on racial or cultural grounds for under the perception that it's a white man's religion, that's a Eurocentric religion. I think that is often just a lack of education and a lack of knowledge. And I think it's a historical nearsightedness. And only being able to see things uh, through the lens of our experience here in America for the last uh, few decades or for the last few centuries. But again, if we can just go back further than that and introduce this is this is really what got me um, into this whole field of study is that we need to introduce our community. We need to we need to show them the pictures of these church, these ancient churches and we need to show them the pictures of these ancient black icons and we need to. Uh, give them texts written by African theologians and in indigenous African languages, in the Coptic language and in the Ethiopic language, that they can read and see these things that predate Islam and that predate uh, uh, all these colonial interventions in the African continent. Um, that I think that that is really the way that we can um, uh, really try to introduce and, and our our community and and encourage our community because there we we have been we have been hoodwinked and uh, and we have been not not only oppressed politically and physically and socially but we have been oppressed intellectually mm-hmm. uh, to think that that this gospel that this church is is not ours and that uh, and that some 
somehow we, you know, we have to be invited into it. And that, no, this is something that began in Africa and that, that ha- we have a long history and we need to stand up and reclaim our rightful place in God's kingdom. Amen. I agree 100 um, percent. Do you know of any um, Egyptian or not, not necessarily early, but the the um, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century, any Africans who would um, e- Egyptian um, Africans, especially that would say that Africans were the true um, lost tribes of Israel, that only Africans were a part of um, the the tribe of Israel. They were the true tribe of Israel. Oh no, no, that's yeah, that's that's not something that you would find in um, yeah in early Christianity. Uh, that's I mean now you know I mentioned earlier that. Ethiopians uh, certainly consider many of them certainly consider themselves um, Jewish. And, you know, in the 13th or 14th century, I can't remember which you have the Kaber Nagas, which is really one of the most prominent uh, texts in Ethiopian Christianity that that talks about this, the history of Queen of Sheba with Solomon and that the first, you know, um, monotheistic king in Ethiopia, uh, he brought Jewish monotheism into Ethiopia. And then in the first century, they were became Christian. Uh, and then in the fifth century, Syrian monks came to bring them the, excuse me, various rites of Christianity. But, um, but, uh, but even there with that example, uh, you know, Ethiopia not claim that they are like the true tribe of Israel in the sense of saying like supplanting, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of Jewish people or Israelites or anything like that, that, um, and then certainly, in Egypt or in Nubia uh, or in Carthage, that there's no example of that where you have uh, people saying that. Um, I mean, this gets into uh, the question of kind of can we talk about race in the early church? And many people will say no. And I would disagree with that cautiously and say that I would say that. And I mean, uh, I'm led here by Gabe Byron's book on symbolic blackness um, that where she looks at the ways in which um, uh anti-black center in Roman society, not only Christian, but how, but her book specifically focuses on how that language is appropriated in Christian terminology and Christian literature, that, that there is an anti-black sentiment, uh, in, or that really comes into Greek and Latin, uh, literature, uh, Christian literature. Uh, another book that's good, for, uh, that that's helpful in this area is Benjamin Isaac, the invention of racism in classical antiquity. And he looks at the way in which, uh, racism and specifically anti-black rhetoric is is really a feature of Roman identity, and so Byron's book picks up on how that how that that anti-black sentiment in Roman society gets appropriated by Roman Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, so I, I I just say that to say that I think race uh, did exist. I mean, certainly they used the term genos uh, or ethnos. But they didn't use it in the same way. And so I'm cautious to say that they didn't understand race in the same way that we do. But, I mean, I would also say that in 2016, we don't understand race the way we did in 1966, you know, and then the way we did in 1866 or in 1466. So, I mean, I don't I, I would I would argue against someone that would say that race is purely a cop of the modern world or that it just got invented in this transatlantic slavery. It certainly got developed in the translated slave trade with skull testing and uh, all this kind of pseudoscience. But there, I would argue that even going back to ancient times, there was a concept of skin color and attaching 
value or lack of value to that skin color. Probably the best examples is Moses the Black, which Byron picks up on in her book, where Moses the Black is one of the Egyptian desert fathers who is ridiculed because of his black skin. And so, um, and so we do, you know, there is, there is this issue of race, but again, it's not thought of in the same way. So, uh, so, I mean, the concept of Jewish, uh, is a, is an even thornier one because, uh, it, it gets into the question that is in the ancient world and especially in early Christianity is Jewish. Is that considered a, uh, an ethnicity or a religion? And I would argue that it's both. Um, and it, depending on the context, but certainly in North Africa, especially in Alexandria and in Carthage, you have uh, significant Jewish communities that were also African. Um, and so and that's why at Pentecost you have uh, Jews from every tribe and nation and tongue. And so um, uh, and so, you know, but but I mean, to answer the specific question, though, I think that um, because race and ethnicity were operative in the early Christian world, but they were it was articulated in a different kind of way. Um, I don't think that I don't think that it would be possible in the early Christian world that you would have someone um, seeing uh, Africanness and Jewishness as uh, as as um, inherently uh, antithetical concepts, um, but that uh, Jews who happened to live in Carthage, Alexandria, saw themselves as a part of a larger people group that were also in Palestine, that were also in Asia Minor, that were in the Persian, and that there was a, a unified Jewish identity that wouldn't have been concerned as in the same way as uh, with, with skin color as we are today. And so that's a, a long way of saying no. I don't think that that would be and an argument would be made in the early church, um, but that's one that's really more particular to kind of 20th century uh, African-American religious groups. Thank you. That was definitely helpful um, because we definitely hear that one um, as well. <laughs> we recently published mm. a, um, a podcast um, with a, um, a guy named Vocat Malone who's actually working on his, his doctoral uh his PhD at, or it'd be his D-man, but his, um, his dissertation is on, um, basically kind of black Hebrew Israelites. Um, and he's mm-hmm. doing it at Biola. And so um, we had him want to talk about, uh, specifically that group. And he was explaining that, uh, that's kind of a, something that they, um, kind of spread as far as the African Americans being kind of the lost tribe. And we would be kind of understood as that, um, so that was an interesting thing to know, but like you just shed light on, that's um, it's just not the case. And it was funny because we got a whole lot of emails and responses from Hebrew Israelites that were uh, responding to that podcast. I don't even know how they found it, but uh, <laughs> that was that was an interesting time. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you know, I think about it. I think about my work as a pastor also, and I, I mean, I'm pastor in. North St. Louis, uh, you know, which is um, which is which is a community that has been severely neglected um, uh, and and resources have been stripped from the community. And there I mean, in my community, there are more dilapidated, closed down school buildings than there are operating schools and and, uh, you know, hospitals. And I mean, it's a food desert. It's a it's a financial desert, a bank desert. I mean, the communities have literally been stripped away from the community. And all we have are, you know, liquor stores and dilapidated buildings. And so I see our young people 
And I, I have to come against people who always want to criticize the young people and say, well, what's wrong with our young people? And like, well, it's really more what is wrong with our society? We have not given we've taken away so many positive things from our young people and their only recourse left is to resort to self-destructive behavior sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we have to be the ones to provide opportunities and resources for our young people. That's why in our church, we have job program, we have, uh, you know, fitness programs and educational program. And just that's our focus is really resourcing our people. And I see it in the same way when I think when I think about Hebrew Israelites, when I think about Nation Islam, when I think about uh, five percenters or all these all these different groups uh, or even like remixes of them. Sometimes we'll like mix them together. I, I hear of a new group like every day. And it's interesting how similar they all sound. That's, uh, I mean, number, I mean, it's, it's, first of all, it's interesting that so many of them, as much as I love and respect my people, uh, how many of them sometimes are very devoid of theological or historical insight. Um, but they're often really just fueled by a very understandable anger and rage towards uh, just the, again, not only the physical and the social, but the intellectual pillaging of our people that has taken place in this country for 400 years. And so I, I see that and I look at and I think about our young people who have been, again, uh, stripped away. The, I mean, the Christian message for the last 1200 years has been held hostage by whiteness and by the concept of white supremacy and by European and Eurocentricity. Um, and so uh, it's and so it's so again in the same way that our community has been stripped of its resources, our people, uh, by and large, have been stripped of their own sense of of ownership in this in this gospel message that this is not ours but it's theirs. It's the religion of the oppressors, and so that's why it's so important that we have to reintroduce our people. I'm, I remember I told a I told a, uh, an Ethiopian priest. I said, yeah, you know, uh, especially in the United States, but really not just there, but in Jamaica and, uh, you know, in Brazil, there's lots of people of African descent that want nothing to do with Christianity. Because, And he was like, what? Like, why? And I was, I told him, I was like, well, because, you know, they, they perceive Christianity as the white man's religion. And, 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 and I'm sitting here just kind of, you know, just burdened by this dynamic, but I was just taken aback by his reaction. Started laughing. He was laughing so hard, and and I was like, and then I was thinking about it from his perspective why that would be so funny, and and I was just like, wow. But then I was thinking, man, the the intellectual and the spiritual and the mental freedom that my brother has because that is just like so far from their reality. The idea that Christianity is a white man, that's hilarious to him. Like that's, and I was just like, wow. And I, I'm like, I pray for the day that that can be hilarious to our people too, that that's just like a figment of someone's imagination that again, doesn't match up to, to historical reality. And that's, I think that as we continue to introduce the rich history of, uh, of the gospel, and this is actually, I mean, this is really the subject of, of this, of, book that I'm working on uh, right now with, um, with InterVarsity Press that, uh, you know, hopefully will be, you know, coming out, I'll be finishing up in another year, um, where, again, through that and through the, some of the writings of people I mentioned and through this podcast and all these di different venues, if we can just continue to uh, introduce our community to the richness of the, the, the body of Christ and the Christian religion, that it is truly uh, a religion of every tribe, tongue, and nation, that, and, and that includes and has at the forefront of it African, uh, that we can really, um, 
I think, really shake off a lot of the intellectual and the spiritual bonds that are holding many of our people down that are that are unfortunately going to these other alternative options that that, again, are devoid of of truth or historical reality. And oftentimes, again, are they're clinging to religions that have been like uh, directly oppressive towards African people and like have expressed intense hatred of African people from the very beginning. And so, again, if we can take them beyond that and uh, and and actually provide them with something that is rich and that is as transformative as the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is that is of and it is for African people, then I think that we are going to see a lot more transformation in our community. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm I'm really blown away uh, by your last uh, well, this whole conversation, um, because I think it's helpful to me as just understanding more uh, because, you know, a lot of this history wasn't taught in seminary. I did, you know, the MDF. And this is not something, you know, you you learn in most evangelical seminaries, you're the African history or the, that you kind of assume that the early church fathers that we're talking about in class or are not African. You know, you don't kind of make the you, the dots don't connect for you. Um, so um, I'm learning as I go, as I'm having this conversation and doing more research uh, myself and I've went through a uh, seminary. So I know those who, who have a seminary definitely, you know, are disconnected from this. So um, what would you um, like to leave with our listeners as your last word and ways that they could get in contact with you? And if you have any books or resources you want to recommend. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, well, I mean, folks can definitely, uh, you know, definitely get a, get a hold of me. Um, you know, our, our, my church is, uh, org, Um, and so this, uh, J U B I L E E S T L O U I S and, uh, can always see what, you know, what we're up to in our church. Um, and then also you can get in touch with me through Covenant Seminary. Uh, it's, uh, Vince.Bantu at covenantseminary.edu and uh you know would love to get in touch with anybody if anybody had any questions um you know uh definitely uh, some of the you know people that we mentioned in terms of of reading in terms of being able to really get more introduced to this uh this branch of christianity i mentioned salim faraji and the roots of nubian christianity um and uh also um uh, aziz atia on a history of eastern christianity and um uh, also, uh, Ephraim Isaac on the, um, uh, I think the book is called the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church. Those are some really great books that, again, uh, you know, from uh, scholars of African descent, introducing the, these these ancient forms of African Christianity. I think, you know, we uh, really great resources in addition to ones I already mentioned. Um, yeah. And then, I, you know, I think the, the last word would just be um, an encouragement. Uh, you know, I, I have a. Um, I have a friend who is a missionary in China, and uh, it's interesting to look at this as a different, you know, in a different context, but the same issue of this issue of, um, you know, Western cultural captivity. The idea, again, this idea that Christianity is a product of the Western world. And my friend in China has has told me that that dynamic is the single greatest hindrance to the spread of the gospel in China. And as much as as much as the gospel is is growing in China and people are coming to faith left and right, 
for the people who aren't coming to faith, that is often the number one reason. Not not because they have a problem with Jesus, not because they have a problem with the gospel message, but because Christianity is perceived as to be a Western, white, American thing. And that to convert to Christianity is not... Um, you know, it's not it's not about following Jesus in people's minds, but it's about becoming. Oh, you become American, and so that's a you know, and that's not just in China, but that's in the Middle East, it's in India, it's in Africa, it's in uh, it's you know, it's among Native Americans. It's 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 a, it's a dynamic that uh, people, uh, so many people, have become culturally alienated uh, from the gospel, and that is just that's a situation that should not be the case. If somebody doesn't want to come to faith in Christ because they have a problem with Jesus or because they don't believe who he is, what he's, who he said he was, that's one thing. And, you know, we can't do nothing about that. And we just, you know, we pray for people. But if somebody's not coming to faith in Christ because they feel like, you know, culturally alienated and because Jesus, they can't even see Jesus because he's so covered by, uh, Western packaging and, and centuries of colonialism and slavery, that should not be the case. And so that is the reason why we labor and strive in this endeavor. It's not about uh, some political agenda. It's not about uh, guilt tripping. And it's not about um, engendering hatred. It's about the spread of the gospel. That's my fundamental uh, concern here. Uh, and it's not just about, you know, some kind of liberal deification of black people for its own sake or some humanistic endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, but again, um, this problem of Western captivity is a huge issue uh, on the mission field, both domestically and internationally. Uh, and so for the sake of the gospel, we have to read up, we have to study up, and we have to, uh, we have to encourage and support indigenous contextualized expressions of Christianity so that we can really uh, show the world the picture of the church that John saw in Revelation 7 9 of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Bantu. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it